Let's pray. Lord, we ask that your word would go forth with healing power as we turn to it now. In your name, amen. Okay, can you turn to Jeremiah chapter 4? If you don't have a Bible, I think there's some at the back. It would be easier if you did have a Bible open because we're going to look at the whole of this chapter and um, it's good for you to check that what I'm saying is actually in here. Uh, It's always good to have the Word of God open. This is a, it's a difficult chapter, but I've really enjoyed looking at it. It is a series of poems describing the message that a young man, Jeremiah, was called to give to the nation of Judah, which was complacent under enormous threat from Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt, surrounding much, much larger nations. And God's word comes in several poems of incredible power and imagery. And uh, we're going to to look at these. It, It is difficult, though, to look at these if you, depending on how you come to look at them. I don't know if you've ever gone into a conversation not knowing what has gone on before, but you just come in and you join in. And if you're like me, you join in straight away. You've got something to say, you're going to say it. But because you don't know what's gone before, because you're not aware of what people have been saying, then when you join in, it becomes kind of awkward and embarrassing. Because here's the point. Not everything in the world is about us. Not everything is about me. It is not my world, my universe. And in Jeremiah's context, he couldn't even say it's my life. And I think one of the difficulties we have when we come to God's word is each of us, we come into this building, we come to worship, and how many of us can honestly say that our hearts and our minds are focused on Jesus, or we're focused on God, or we're focused on his people. Most of us come in and we're focused on ourselves. What's happened, what's going to happen, what might occur tomorrow, what someone has said to us, how we feel about things. And we even approach God's word in that way, saying, Lord, you speak to me, you speak to me, you tell me, you speak to me. And I think God does speak to us, but we need to get it in the broader context, first of all, It's like us coming into the conversation and saying, God, God, for me, me, me. And we have to, God says, well, whoa, back off. Look at what's being said. And as we look at what's being said, we'll find that God speaks to us in a far deeper and more profound way than in the way that we sometimes demand. The whole of this chapter is a call to repentance, followed by a warning of what is to come. As I said, there are poems they are beautiful images, and I've never seen any artist paint any of these. these are, this is fantastic imagery to, to, to paint. It's kind of the end of the world as we know it. It's apocalyptic images, like one of these you know, apocalyptic movies, such as Cormac McCarthy's The Road. If you've ever read the book The Road or seen the film The Road, it's like really, really depressing, but brilliant. And, and Jeremiah 4, we read through it, especially we're reading from verse 5, and I think that there's a temptation, we'll go into it and we'll look at it and we'll say, let's find the glimmer of hope, let's find the good bit, let's just, and it's, it's actually as we look at it, it's far more direct to us 
than we might imagine and very uncomfortable. So what I'm saying is hang with this as we go through it and you'll see that it really is incredibly powerful word of God to us. So I'm going to begin by reading in uh, verse 5. I'm going to read it in sections and just comment on each section and then come back to a kind of summary of the whole thing. So let's look at verses, read verses 5 to 10, Jeremiah 4. Announce in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, sound the trumpet throughout the land. Cry aloud and say, gather together, let us flee to the fortified cities. Raise the signal to go to Zion. Flee for safety without delay, for I am bringing disaster from the north, even terrible destruction. A lion has come out of his lair. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has left his place to lay waste your land. Your towns will lie in ruins without inhabitants. So put on sackcloth, lament and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned away from us. In that day, declares the Lord, the king and the officials will lose heart. The priests will be horrified and the prophets will be appalled. Then I said, ah, sovereign Lord, how completely you have deceived this people and Jerusalem by saying you will have peace when the sword is at our throats. You do have to feel some degree of empathy for Jeremiah. He's a young man, maybe 20, 24 years old. And he's basically being asked to go on national television and say something that is entirely contrary to the whole ethos of the culture that he is in. He's going into Jerusalem and he is to announce that actually, although your prophets are saying peace, although your kings are saying glory, although your priests are saying God is with us, God is saying it's the end. Um, in Dad's army, you have, the, remember that, what's his name, the sergeant who goes around shouting, panic, panic, don't panic, you know, the gloomy Scots one. Don't panic, don't panic. Jeremiah is being told to go and tell the people to panic. The trumpet to sound, that's a call to arms. To raise the signal, that's the flag which says to people, Get out of your town, get out of your villages, get out of your farms, get away from your suburbs, get into any town that has a wall around it because you need to be safe. It's like in the Return of the King in the Lord of the Rings trilogy when the beacons are lit and people know that there's something happening while well, he's saying, raise the flag, raise the standard because the enemy is coming and he's an enemy from the north. It could be Assyria, it could be different countries. It's a bit like, um, you know, that Robin Hood, Kevin Costner's Robin Hood, when the worst thing that can happen is the Celts arrive from Scotland. That's the thing that puts fear into everyone. Well, this is the equivalent here. The enemy is coming from the north. He is the lion coming from the north. A lion has come out of his lair. A destroyer of nations has set out. He is on his way. The lion imagery in the Bible, by the way, is very interesting. It's not all Aslan. It's not all God as lion. There is the devil as lion as well. 1 Peter 5.8, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. They're being told to retreat into the fortified towns. Verse 9, the politicians and the priests, they can't save you. They are going to be horrified when they see what the kings and the officials will lose heart, the priests will be horrified and the prophets will be appalled. Because the message that Jeremiah is giving goes entirely against the prevailing power structures in the land. And incidentally, that is something that as our society becomes more and more secularized, 
the message that the church of Jesus Christ is called to give is often one that will be completely countercultural and revolutionary in the best sense of the word. Sure, you will get your established church, you will get your prophets and priests who are paid in effect by the state or supported by the culture who will tell the culture what they want to hear. They will gather people, a time will come when people will not hear the word of the Lord, says Paul. They will gather around them with itching ears, those who will just say what the culture wants to hear. It's really, really hard to go against the prevailing power structures. I've been asked to speak to the Scottish Parliament um, and the temptation just to stand up and waffle. It's not, that's not a temptation I have here, by the way, but you may think different. But the temptation to stand up and waffle and just come out with a few truisms. But we don't want to upset them and we don't want to hurt them and so on. It's an enormous temptation. You don't go in deliberately to try and hurt and offend people. But I can tell you this, if you're going to teach God's word, it's going to really go against the power structures of kings and officials who do not recognize God. And Jeremiah does that. Verse 10, he accuses God of having deceived the people. This is his own conversation, if you like. He prays, Lord, how completely you have deceived this people and Jerusalem by saying you will have peace when the sword is at our throats. What's happening there? What he's asking is, why did you let these prophets prophesy peace when there is no peace? They prophesied, but their prophecy was not from God. And I think the answer to Jeremiah's own question is simply this. You're the answer. You've got to go and do it. You have to say that there is no peace, at least not in the way that they were looking. So that's the first section. Let's read verses 11 to uh, 18. At that time, this people in Jerusalem will be told, a scorching wind from the barren heights in the desert blows towards my people, but not to winnow or cleanse. A wind too strong for that comes from me. Now I pronounce my judgments against them. Look, he advances like the clouds. His chariots come like a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, we are ruined. O Jerusalem, wash the evil from your heart and be saved. How long will you harbor wicked thoughts? A voice is announcing from Dan, proclaiming disaster from the hills of Ephraim. Tell this to the nations. Proclaim it to Jerusalem. A besieging army is coming from a distant land, raising a war cry against the cities of Judah. They surround her like men guarding a field because she's rebelled against me, declares the Lord. Your own conduct and actions have brought this upon you. This is your punishment. How bitter it is. How it pierces to the heart. He warns them of the punishment that is to come that he has to announce. And in, firstly, he talks about the Sirocco. I used to have a bike that was called a Sirocco. I had no idea what it meant. But a Sirocco is a, a, a roaring wind from the desert. Jeremiah contrasts with that with the gentle wind that the farmer would have that when he would throw up the corn and the chaff with the corn, the gentle wind would take the chaff, which was light, and blow it away but the corn would fall to the ground. That's when you, you see these pictures of uh, people with a, a, some kind of basket and they're throwing the corn up in the air. That's what they're doing. They're sifting the corn because there's this gentle wind that blows away the chaff but doesn't blow away the corn. The Sirocco blows everything away. Jeremiah, God is speaking through Jeremiah and saying to his people, all of you 
This wind is coming. It's so strong, this scorching wind. It's coming like the clouds. It's coming like the chariots, like a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. It's an incredibly, that, this whole section is, it, it, it is incredibly powerful imagery and poetry. And I was trying to think of something contemporary that works with it. This isn't really that contemporary. Um, I, what I found is something that, to me, I'm, I'm not sure that there are many songwriters in the 21st century who could do this, but let's go to the 20th century and try Mr. Robert Zimmerman. I'm not going to sing it to you. I'd love to, but beautiful words. What did you hear, my blue-eyed son? And what did you hear, my darling young one? I heard the sound of a thunder that roared out a warning, heard the roar of a wave that could drown the whole world. I heard 100 drummers whose hands were ablazing. I heard 10,000 whispering and nobody listening. I heard one person starve. I heard many people laughing. Heard the sound of a poet who died in the gutter. I heard the sound of a clown who, died, who cried in the alley. And it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard rain's going to fall. You go and listen to that. And providing you can cope with Bob Dylan's voice, I think it works very well with this song. He was singing about nuclear devastation. And in the 1960s, when he sang that, it really did get to people. It was, it was an, a series of images that really got home. Well, what is happening here is that Jeremiah is doing exactly the same. It's a series of images saying, this is Desolation Row. Now, again, we live in a culture where people don't like this. Uh, the view of someone shouting out, doom, doom, we're all doomed. It is a kind of dad's army. It's the nutcase down the street with the placard, the end is nigh, and everyone has a good laugh. Because in, in our culture, every politician has, has to say things are going to get better. Every media outlet has to say things are going to be good. Every songwriter, every communicator. That's what you've got to say. You've got to be positive. But what if that's not the truth? The chariots of God, the chariots and the horses. Verse 14 says the only remedy is being reconciled to God, and we'll come back to that in a moment, how difficult that is. John L. McCain commenting on this says, the day of divine intervention will reverse all merely human expectations and lead to the psychological disintegration of a society whose value system and aspirations are based on them. It just simply means this, that, that we're living in this illusion. Our politicians are living in an illusory world. Our media people are living in an illusory world. And many people, our middle classes, are living in an illusory world. It's all plasma TV, and everything's going to be fine, and everything's going to be great, and if only we do this, things will be better. And yet... That's not the way that it is. And when you look ahead into the future, if we can look ahead in any way whatsoever, it's not that encouraging, to put it mildly. There's a punishment coming up. There's a proclamation of that punishment. In verse 18, the hypocrites cast the blame on God, but God says, no, it's your own fault. That's the, the whole idea there of your own conduct and actions have brought this upon you. Now, let me back off just a little bit and say this. You must not take this and say, well, what that means is when I am sick, it's because I've been sinful. 
or when so-and-so has a relative die, it's because they're being punished by God. You cannot take every single individual thing that happens to you as an individual and say it's a direct punishment of God. That's not what is being taught here. Jesus, if you go to Luke 13, he talks about the 18 who were killed in the Tower of Siloam. Jesus said, do you think that they were more sinful than other people? No, not at all. Were they more guilty than the rest of the people in Jerusalem? No. But it's a collective thing. So you'll find that in our society and in our culture, there'll be things that will happen that we've sown the wind and we've reaped the whirlwind. You don't take it as an individual thing. You take it as a collective thing. And when I see what we are sowing in our culture and what we're sowing in our society, it does, it does scare you. We went to see the King's Speech, which, by the way, I highly, highly recommend, really recommend it. I thought it was an absolutely brilliant film. Um, but one of the things that was going through my mind as I was watching it, this is Britain 50 years ago, and okay, it can have a kind of idealistic notion. But I contrasted Britain of 50 years ago when the king could urge the nation to pray. Is there a single political leader who would do that in Britain today? Is that who will do it? The queen will. In her queen's speech, she did. And that's that's actually the portrayal of the queen back then is really very interesting. But I just contrasted it with there was that, and then we came out of the cinema, and there's another film. I'll probably go and see it because it would probably be a very good film. Uh, called Ned's, and I thought, yeah, that somehow just that just somehow juxtaposition puts in position where we're heading as a culture. That's why Jeremiah feels this. He feels pain and perplexity. Look at the pain. It's just extraordinary. Oh, my anguish, my anguish. I writhe in pain. Oh, the agony of my heart. My heart pounds within me, for I cannot keep silent. Jeremiah feels it because he's part of the community which is suffering. He's not detached from the community. He's not the religious person living isolated saying, this is going to happen to you lot. He's saying, this is going to happen to me and to my people. It's only because he knows his homeland. It's only because he knows his own people that he can proclaim so courageously and objectively the disasters which he foresaw. You have to love the people you are seeking to bring the gospel to. And in Scotland, it is just so depressing that you get Christians who go, oh, the gospel's not going on very well here. I'm out here. What kind of Christian are you? We, the, the gospel is to be brought to people who will reject it, who will persecute you, who will laugh at you. But they still need the gospel because you rejected the gospel. You persecuted, you laughed at Jesus. And he still loved you and came to you. And we are to reflect that. So Jeremiah feels that pain. Jeremiah, disaster follows disaster. There's the collapse of the whole infrastructure of the country. And there's ignorance of God in his ways. My people are fools, verse 22. They do not know me. They are senseless children. They have no understanding. They are skilled in doing evil. They know not how to do good. My people are fools. They do not know me. Deuteronomy 30 says this. 
This was the promise that God gave. Now, what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It's not up in heaven, so you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it. No, the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commands, decrees and laws. Then you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you're entering to possess. My people are foolish. They do not know me. They're senseless children with no understanding why. I promised them that my word was with them. They didn't have to go up to heaven to get it. They didn't have to go down into the depths of the sea to get it. It was there all the time. And they didn't. The foolish ones are not those who are thick-headed, but those who are wrong-headed. They know nothing, says God, that is ultimately worth knowing. And as a result, they do nothing that is ultimately worth doing. They know not how to do good. Romans 1.18 captures this in the Greco-Roman world. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, here's the thing. So many people in this country, so many people even in the church, will say things like, I didn't know and I don't know. But ignorance is not an excuse. We didn't again is not going to work with that because God has, has given us the means to know God has shown us. God reveals. And we just refuse to know. And Jeremiah is ripped to shreds at that. He is just, his, in, in, in himself, his, his heart is just ripped apart in pain and perplexity. And then let's read from verse 23 to the end. I looked at the earth and it was formless and empty. And at the heavens and their light was gone. I looked at the mountains and they were quaking. All the hills were swaying. I looked and there were no people. Every bird in the sky had flown away. I looked and the fruitful land was a desert. All its town lay in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. This is what the Lord says. The whole land will be ruined, though I will not destroy it completely. Therefore the earth will mourn and the heavens above grow dark. Because I have spoken and will not relent. I have decided and will not turn back. At the sound of horsemen and archers, every town takes to flight. Some go into the thicket. Some climb up among the rocks. All the towns are deserted. No one lives in them. What are you doing, O oh devastated one? Why dress yourself in scarlet and put on jewels of gold? Why shade your eyes with paint? You adorn yourself in vain. Your lovers despise you. They seek your life. I hear a cry as of a woman in labor. A groan as of one bearing her first child. The cry of the daughter of Zion, gasping for breath. Stretching out her hands and saying, Alas, I am fainting. My life is given over to murderers. It's paradise lost and paradise regained. The verses 23 for the next three or four verses, again, it's just one of the most powerful poems you will ever, ever read because it's the reverse of creation. You go and read Genesis 1. God saw that the earth was chaotic and he spoke and there came light and he spoke and there came vegetation and he spoke and there came animals and he spoke and so on. And God's word creates and he sees it's good and he sees it's good and he sees it's good. And here is the reverse. God speaks, certainly. 
but it's, it's chaos that's coming. All form and beauty is, is going. Now it's not good. The mountains quake. There's no security. The birds flee. There is loneliness. When the birds are flying away, you know that there is big, big, big trouble. Verse 26, when there's no fruit, it's all wasteland. If God's covenant with his people fails, there is no hope for the world. And it's that aspect of being wasted and wasteland in the midst of what appears to be a rich culture that Jeremiah addresses to us. I was really saddened, actually, you always saddened when you get things like this, but I was saddened at the death of Jerry Rafferty this week, uh, the Scottish singer, who's a who, singer-songwriter, who also is a genius. But what a waste in terms uh, of his life. His most famous song, Winding Our Way Down on Baker Street, Light in Your Head and Dead in Your Feet, Well, Another Crazy Day, You'll Drink the Night Away and Forget About Everything. That's what he did. He drank the night away, basically went off to America and just couldn't get rid of the demons within. This city desert makes you feel so cold. It's got so many people, but it's got no soul. And it's taken you so long to find out that you were wrong when you thought it held everything. That's where we're at. City desert makes you feel so cold. It's got so many people, but it's got no soul. God has spoken. The creation is undone. The prostitute and the mother, the two images that finish, they're stunning ones. That of the prostitute Israel seeking to seduce Babylon. Babylon's invading and Israel is getting all dolled up and saying, come on in, boys. And it doesn't work. And the other one is of the mother who's giving birth to life, except not giving birth to life because as birth is given to life, there's death. And Jeremiah uses that as an image, as James uses it. James 1.15, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Now, from death comes the possibility of resurrection, but the people don't know that, and that's the message that Jeremiah was called to bring. Now, there are problems with this, the whole thing. Let me just go through this and try and connect this to where we're at. First of all, there's the problem that many of you will feel. You'll say, I don't want to believe in a God who's got this wrath like a Sirocco wind. Why can't my God be cuddly? Why can't he be nice? And so you get people like Peter Houston, who in an interview on the radio this week said, uh, talking about it, and it was just amazing. Peter Houston, the Scottish artist, and I love his work, and I, I love the interview, but it, again, it was so heartbreaking to hear what he had to say, because he was longing for Jesus and longing for God. And he says, I can't believe in the God of the wrath of the Old Testament. And then he then talked about how he found the mass really beautiful in the Catholic church, but he couldn't take it because he wasn't a Catholic. And he was torn and ripped apart in all different kinds of ways. And he said, I have no peace. I have no peace. I keep looking. I don't want to believe in a God who's wrathful towards us. But here's the point. The point about this in terms of this. The pain that Jeremiah feels and this whole aspect, God's wrath and God's mercy show, both show God's intense commitment to us. It is precisely because God cares that God is angry. 
You see, the person who was interviewing Houston, immediately a bishop said immediately, oh, yes, well, we don't want to believe in that kind of God as well. And I'm going, no, actually, I do. I want to believe in that kind of God because I don't want a God who's lesser than me. Because what they were saying is we can get angry at the idea of a God like that, but we can't have God getting angry at any sin. I don't want a God like that. I just felt for Houston, I felt you really are struggling, you just haven't grasped who both the God of the Old Testament, if you like, and Jesus of the New, because they are the same, who they are. I think both wrath and mercy show God's intense commitment to us. But here, here's another problem I think some of us find even deeper. Verse 14 says, go wash yourself, wash the evil from your heart and be saved. How do you do that? I've... Um, my back pocket, I, just, uh, I got a letter this morning, believe it or not, shoved through the door there. And basically, it just simply says, how do I, how do I, how do I be saved? How do I wa- wash my heart and be saved? I was at a conference this week, and Sinclair Ferguson said something that's very important. I put those words up there, imperatives and indicatives. You've got to get the indicatives before you can do the imperatives. Now, imperatives are commands. Okay. But you can't do the commands of the Bible until you get the indicatives. The indicatives are the descriptions. Flee for safety. Wash the evil from your heart and be saved. You can't do that. I can't do that. Repentance is absolutely essential, but we can't repent. Because it's a matter of the heart, not of external religion. It's not a matter of lighting a candle or of coming to the front or of saying a prayer or of reading the Bible or of doing all these different things, of putting your hand up in uh, in an evangelistic service. It's something that's deeply internal. How long will you harbor wicked thoughts within you? And the minute that happens, you start thinking about wicked thoughts that are within you. You try getting rid of something that you are thinking because you know that it's wrong. You think it again and again and again. So you need something else. You need the indicatives before you can obey the imperatives. And here's the indicative. In here, it's a description of what's going on, and it's the pain. It's the promise in verse 27 that though the whole land will be ruined, I will not destroy it completely. It's God saying, this is what is happening, but only God can rescue us from the mess that we've made of his world. If there's a God up above, sang Freddie Mercury, a God of love, then what must he think of the mess that we've made of the world that he created? Now, you go back to verse 19, and Jeremiah stands, as it were, between God and man. My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the agony of my heart, my heart pounds within me. He sees on the one hand the sin and the hell and the horror. He sees what is going on in his country, the blindness and the arrogance, the ignorance and the backsliding. He feels the righteous and just anger of God. And he's not questioning it. He knows it's right. He knows it's just. He knows there are no excuses. He sees his own people and he loves his own people. And he has to stand in the gap. That's what he's doing. The expression comes from Ezekiel 22. I look for a man among them who would build the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. But I found none. So I'll pour out my wrath on them and consume them with my fiery anger, bringing down on their own heads all they have done, declares the sovereign Lord. Now we're leading to another imperative before we, uh, uh, another, yeah, kind of command. I think people, lots of Christians take this. I honestly think it's a big mistake. Lots of Christians say, who's going to stand in the gap? Who's going to stand in the gap? 
as we see the state of Scotland today, the state of Dundee today, the state of the United Kingdom, we see the collapse, perhaps, coming of the infrastructure of the country. Do we not feel the pain? Do we not hurt? Do we not despair? Do we not see what is coming? We see the hard rain coming. We see the judgment of God. We see the pale rider whose name is death. We see hell. But we then think, who's going to stand in the gap? And I don't don't like to do this. Um, I think Ravi Zacharias actually said something wrong when he spoke here at the Decaday. When I thought the whole talk was brilliant, but the one thing that was wrong was this. He looked out at us and he said, you are Scotland's hope. Now, I know what what he meant, and I know it was encouraging, and I know I can understand it and agree with it to a point. But, you know, at the end of the day, if that was true, Scotland's finished. I understand, I mean, I do understand what he was trying to say, but you're not the man in the gap or the woman in the gap, and I'm not the man in the gap. What I love about this is Jeremiah is just ripped to shreds. He has no concept, no idea of Christ, but he speaks of Christ. Look at this, Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Luke twenty-two forty-four. same event, he says this, being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. On the cross, Christ cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We had a, my family had a full-blown discussion at the old Smiddy and Errol on the passion of the Christ and how it communicated or didn't communicate the cross. I think anyone who heard us must have thought, what a bunch of nutcases, or they would have heard the gospel. But um, we just, it was a really good discussion. I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm married to a theologian, and I have children who are theologians. It just does my head in. But it was, it was really, actually, a very, very helpful discussion. Jesus on the cross suffered incredibly physically. He suffered incredibly, even more so, spiritually and emotionally. Why? Because he's the man in the gap as the Sirocco of God's wrath against all the sin and injustice and evil in the world is poured out upon Christ. He is the one in the gap. He's the one who sees even more than Jeremiah. And you can see Christ saying, oh, my anguish, my anguish. I writhe in pain. Oh, the agony of my heart. He sweated like great drops of blood falling to the ground. He pleaded with God, take this cup from me. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. See, you go for the cuddly God. You go for the cuddly Jesus. You miss out the depth. You miss out the love. You cannot experience the deep, deep love of Jesus until you know something of why God so hates evil that so distorts and so perverts. Christ is the Redeemer who feels the pain. Christ bears the wrath. Christ is the atoning sacrifice, turning aside the wrath of God. Christ takes the curse. Christ takes the pain. Christ takes the punishment. And that's the indicative, and because of that indicative, the imperative, wash your hearts, 
It's done. You can do it. Why? These are they who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I can't give myself a new heart, but God can, and Jesus does. Again this week, Sinclair Ferguson, I love this quote that he came up with. God is the great artist, and he's just putting the finishing touches. The great thing has already been done. He's talking about suffering. You do not suffer in order to be saved. You suffer because you have been saved. God is just putting the finishing touches. We live this side of the cross. Who is going to stand in the gap? Christ already has, and he does. And that is why I am not the hope of Scotland. You are not the hope of Scotland. The church is not the hope of Scotland. The hope of Scotland is Jesus Christ. That's the hope that you and I have as we go from this place. As we look into a new year, I know that you have lots of hopes and perhaps lots of fears. Hopes about marriage, hopes about jobs, hopes about work, hopes about money, hopes about where you will live, hopes about church, hopes about how you might grow spiritually. But my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's my only hope. That is your only, only hope. Not just from a wrathful God, but from a God who is wrathful because of a distorted and perverted world. We live in a sick world. We live in a perverted world. We live in a twisted world. We live in a world where the creation is being undone, where the chaos is returning. But we live in a world where God wants to renew and to recreate that world. And so he sent his son. Now, if you are a Christian, take hold of this. Wash your hearts. Make them clean. You, Jesus has done it for you. You can come to him. You can wash the evil from your heart and be saved. If you are not a Christian, I think what we need more than anything else in this church is for you to become one. It's for you to commit your life to Jesus Christ. It's for you to rely wholly and totally and absolutely on him. See, going back to what Peter Houston said, my personal response to that would be this. There are many things in the Bible I don't get, I don't grasp. And there's a great deal of pain and agony in all the things that are there. But one thing I do know, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And that he took that curse and he took that wrath and he took that pain. Wash your hearts and be saved. I'm going to say a prayer that I'm putting on the screen that I took out of Calvin's commentary on this. And then uh, maybe I can ask Owen if you would come and pray, please, after this. Let's, let me just say this prayer and then Owen will lead us in prayer. Grant, Almighty God, that since you are pleased to invite us to repentance, and since our own conscience is a witness how we have in various ways provoked your vengeance, O oh, grant that we may not remain obstinate in our sins, nor harden our minds by perverse delusions, but suffer ourselves to be subdued by your word, and so offer ourselves to you with a pure and sincere heart, that our whole lives may be nothing but a striving for that newness which you require, so that being consecrated to you in mind and body, we may ever labor to glorify your name until we be made participants of that glory which has been obtained for us by the blood of your only begotten Son, 
Amen.